1: Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji and Stage 14 of the Tour de France, Stage 6 of Terreno-Adriatico, and Stage 1, the Team Time Trial of the Giro Rosa. That's the order in which we're going to do this podcast today. We're going to keep it snappy. Stage 14 of the Tour was a pretty interesting stage, and we didn't have a firm grasp on what would happen in the stage. If you listen to yesterday's podcast, it was 194 kilometers from Clermont-Ferrand to Lyon, and Really, the intermediate sprint and the jostling for the green jersey, we we thought that was going to dominate the first half of the race. There was an intermediate sprint point about 37 kilometers in after a Category 4 climb, 1.3 Ks at 6%. There were some steeper sections in there. After that immediate intermediate sprint, they went straight into a Cat 2, 12 Ks, 5.5%, pretty even gradient. Then rolly terrain, another categorized climb, Cat 3, 4 Ks at 5.7%. Then a long descent. A valley, a pretty gradual, looks almost like a false flat uphill climb, then another long descent, about 30 K's or so into Lyon, and then two category four climbs. The Côte de la Duchère and the Côte de la Croix. About one and a half K's each and four and a half, five and a half percent each. So they were both ten Ks and five Ks before the finish with 194 Ks to go. So really well placed. Uh, but yeah, that was the profile. We didn't know whether a break would go or whether it would be a bunch sprint. The betting markets didn't know either. And what happened when the flag dropped, Benji?
0: Well, I'd like to take us back towards yesterday's podcast on which we basically tried to plan out how the stage would go towards a green jersey battle. Because as you said, that was our fought for the first half of the race. Now, we had settled with the fact that we thought that the race would be pretty close down at the start because you'd have Bora pacing for that fourth cat, and on that fourth cat, potentially dropping Bennett. That was our expectation. And after that, he would go for the 20 points. And after the intermediate sprint, he would end up, well, well, dropping back in the peloton. The pace would go down, and we'd thought the break would form on the Col de BL. But it went about 60% the way we planned out, in the sense that the moment the flag dropped, we had an attack of three riders in total. First of all, it was Stefan Küng of Gupama FDG and also Kees of Sunweb, and we also saw Eduard Tunes of Czech Segafredo bridge up. Now there was something weird happening there because at that point you had three riders in the breakaway, about 45 seconds ahead on the peloton, in which nobody really took the pacing. We saw Bora a bit at the front of the peloton, so we could smell that something would happen. But then we saw an attack by another Sunweb rider, which was Søren Andersen, and. I was confused because, well, at that point, you've got Bull in the breakaway. You've got and Kra Andersen chasing, which is relatively normal. But suddenly we saw Kiy's ball drop at the front, basically come back to and Kro Andersen. They were on like 30 seconds of the front of the race then. And they spoke to each other and they just stopped and they waited for the peloton. So I have no clue what Sunweb was thinking at that point. Maybe they were like, well, this is not going to work anyway, so let's just give up. Or do you think that there's something different on on their minds
1: there? Well, it's one of two things. They've either got the call. The calls come in from the Bora DS across to the Sunweb DS, and by the time it's got to them, they'd already they'd already started their attack, and then you know they were into it. And by the time it then be, been relayed to them on the team radio, um, yeah, they were like 30 seconds in front of the peloton, and then they sat up. Now, I think the real reason is probably they were expecting CCC or Nissen or, or more riders to come with them in the break. That break with just turns and Kung and maybe two Sunweb riders on this parkour, not going to be very unlikely to be strong enough to have a, a real chance at the finish. And if if that was their reasoning, if they thought, okay, well, we're going to attack, so that hopefully maybe even Sturven and, yeah, like a big, a big group of rouleurs, and strong riders on the flat, Cavagna, who yeah was absent today, so no one really went with them, and they made the, they just cut their losses. I think it was probably that rather than some sort of conspiracy from Bora saying stop taking our intermediate sprint points. That seems a little bit. I mean, it, this is cycling, but I don't really know what incentive Sunweb would have to agree <laughs> agree to Bora saying that. What do you think? They saw that it wasn't going to work
0: out when you have two riders up front, well, three rides at that point, with Sodom Kraleson as the fourth guy, then you're basically setting yourselves up for failure on this kind of stage. And it turned out that way because, well, towards that fourth cat climb we spoke about earlier, they called the de Chateau d'Otribes, well, on that one, 1.3 kilometers at 6.2%. We've got a small section of 8% on that as well. And we saw that Bora was taking over in the peloton and, there was a smaller climb ahead of that fourth cat, on which I was like, is this the fourth cat already? Because this is a pretty, well, mediocre climb, so I don't think it's going to work on this one. But then they went uphill again, and they really split up the front of the peloton, and we saw that the Koenig Quickstep was trying so hard with Tim de Klerk, and I think Cavani as well, to try and keep, well, Bennett in the wheel of the Bora riders, because those were basically doing a lead-out on a KOM for the intermediate sprint after it. And... They split that up and towards the top of the climb, one k before the top of the climb, well, I think 500 meters before the top of the climb, we saw the crests and we also saw Bennett drop off the wheel and yeah, he didn't have any teammates anymore. Those were the guys that were trying to keep him in the wheel of those Bora riders and two Bora riders went clear together with Matteo Trentin. I think it was uh, obviously Sagan but also Shockman, but I'm not really sure there.
1: Yes, it was Shockman. So back from his massive effort yesterday, setting up uh, setting up Camner, doing a really good job there. He, Shackman, was back on the front, but it was really Sagan. Sagan was riding within himself. He was, tr- Sagan was wanting to have other teammates come with him towards that intermediate sprint. I'm pretty sure with about 800 meters to go on the climb, Sagan looked back at Bennett, who'd been dropped off by Tim de Klerk, uh, sort of next to Daniel Oss's wheel, and Sagan looked at Bennett and thought, well, he knew he could attack and, and gap him on that climb really, really easily. Bennett was clear very, very clearly on the limit. And but he wanted he seemed to want other teammates with him, uh, presumably to pace him on that downhill section and the well, maybe three to four kilometres into the into the intermediate sprint. Uh and yeah, Trenton was on their wheel for a while and then dropped off, which is I mean I've got to be honest, I've been a little bit disappointed by Trentin. I think We've all been disappointed by CCC in this year's Tour de France. I don't think, yeah, I don't, I don't expect too much from Trentin and Greg Van Avenraat next year either, even with a change of scenery. I think their best years are behind them, but particularly at the end of that Cat 4 where Sagan was kind of sitting up for a little bit and, um, yeah, it was he was waiting for Sharkman and then Sharkman was pulling. Yeah, I was just really surprised that Trentin got dropped there, but Sharkman went clear with. Peter Sagan. Am I I'm remembering that correctly? Trenton didn't contest it was Sagan was able to go across the intermediate sprint uncontested after getting paced by Sharkman towards it. Yes, that is correct. They uh
0: basically had those two riders from Bora, Sharkman and Sagan, go towards the intermediate sprint. They took, I think, the uh fifteen points for Sagan and I think thirteen or fourteen for Sharkman because you're still ahead, you had Kung and Turns left because only the Sunweb riders had decided to stop that attack earlier on. So you basically had a a moment where those two riders took the full points. Then you had Segan taking 15 and 14 for Sharkman or something. I think it's 15 and 14 or 15 and 13, but it doesn't really matter because Sharkman doesn't really care about the intermediate sprint points. Nonetheless, he was wanting to be head of Bennett there. And that's where I think Bora made a bit of a mistake. I uh, don't really want to criticize something that somewhat worked, but I believe that Bennett on the climb looked very much at his limit and he ended up in a group the fad group in which there were I think three bora riders still including Oz and when they arrived at the sprint you saw Bennett sprint for it but not at full force because he was kind of suffering and Oz just took his wheel and didn't really try hard to get past him while I would expect all those bora riders to just YOLO to that line and hope to beat Bennett there because you never know it would give many more points because now You basically have a situation on which Sagan does all of this and only gets five points, which is, it's still a good margin to get, but I feel like it's not enough because I feel they could have gotten more.
1: Yeah, I agree. Sagan, yeah, only getting five or six points because Bennett took, I think, 10 points or nine points behind Sagan. have done all that work. And this is a 65, 66 point margin he's trying to eat into, by the way, so... Five points here or there ain't really going to get it done, assuming that if they go to Champs-Élysées, you'd still be backing uh, Bennett in that sprint ahead of Sagan and probably coming second. And who knows if Caleb Ewan is going to make a time cut uh, before the Champs-Élysées. But I'm pretty sure Oss did try and attack Bennett at certain points. Maybe he was a little bit cooked and tired and, as well. But yeah, it probably would have made sense for the Bora Riders to attack uh, Bennett. Before the sprint, I, I do think when I was looking at front on, I, I don't think he could have come round Bennett. Otherwise, I, I think you know he's a pretty smart guy. He knows what's going on. I think he he definitely would have been tried if he'd been able to. And with only Schapman and Sagan clear, they obviously sat up. But it was straight into this category two. Well, not straight into it. Technically, there was a climb beforehand that wasn't classified as part of it um, for some reason. But they were basically into climbing up the Col de, Biel, uh, Col de Biel 12Ks at 5.5%, and we saw Emmanuel Buchmann coming to the front of the race for the first time in this year's Tour de France and start to drive it on the front for Bora Hansgrohe, and they were trying to drop Sam Bennett on this climb. Originally, he was on the lower slopes, Quick Step we're riding at a snail's pace with uh, Tim de Klerk on the front on the climb just trying to control things and ride defensively. And Bora were having none of it. And, yeah, they just lined it out on this climb. I haven't looked at the numbers. Now, no one really got dropped or put under pressure, to be honest, except the pure sprinters like Ewan and Greipel and co. Um, but, yeah, Bulkin went on the front. I don't think he was actually doing that good a job, really. Uh, Bennett was actually hanging in, looking pretty good for until maybe the last... Three kilometers or so and then our boy Leonard Kemner got on the front and he started really really driving it at the end of this climb Uh, like he actually put a lot of riders into difficulty not just the sprinters. Ewan was gone at the base, Greipel was gone, Pierre Latour was also dropped Uh, we might talk about why that might be happening later and Bennett was just sort of yo-yoing at the back and then Right near the end, maybe with, oh, I can't remember, a kilometre and a half, two kilometres left in the climb, maybe even less, not that much left. Bennett just started to drop off the back. He was surrounded by Askren, Kavanya, um, three Stevanins maybe, Benji, Tim de Clerc, So he had a good support squad around him. And Kemner split the group, like the entire peloton. He split the entire peloton over the top of that climb and then went straight into the descent. So really impressive work from him. And with that gap, I think at the top, of, at like 30 seconds, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, you, about 30 seconds, what did you think Bennett was going to catch back on easily and Bora were going to sit up, given that Bennett actually did a reasonably good job on that climb hanging on?
0: Honestly, I thought that they wouldn't sit up because otherwise this whole thing was not worth it. But I did expect him to come back because he's got engines like Asgren, Cavagna with him and such. And on the climb, maybe that wouldn't help. But towards the downhill section, I'd expect him to keep the gap a bit. But after that, there's so many plateau sections in this stage that I really expected quick step to come back. But one small note, at that moment, we had obviously Kung still at the front. Turns was already dropped off the back, so Kung took the crest of the de in the breakaway I think he had about a gap of two minutes and a half there now I expected a breakaway to form on that second cat but Bora pretty much made sure that didn't happen because of their pacing so at that point it basically looked like Kung was riding nowhere and yeah I was disappointed weren't you because I was expecting somewhat of a breakaway stage in this transitioning stage and I thought it would be pretty boring until the last 10 kilometers from
1: that point onwards. The, the problem is, the, the, it's a climb where we thought the breakaway was going to form. But the only people that would be strong enough to attack over the top of Bookman and Kemner is a really, really strong climber. Someone maybe like Ala Philippe or Dan Martin, both of whom, by the way, all, all those sort of riders that we're talking about uh, in that category, they were all in the break yesterday. So they'd have tired legs. And But more importantly, Sure, they'd get a gap over the top of the climb, and then they're staring down the barrel of one cat three, and about a hundred and twenty, hundred and thirty kilometers of rolling plateaus and false light uphills and downhills and no real climbing. So, no, thank you very much for the climbers, and yeah, Jasper Sturvin, Trenton, Greg Van Alen, Matt nice, and Patterson, who Patterson's probably on looking after Richie Porte duties, they're not going to be able to attack over the top of that Bora pace. So as you said, it just neutralized the race completely. And at least it ended up for a time being a, a battle between Leonard Camner on the front, who was pinning it on the descent for Bora Hansgrohe. Like he had that group strung out. He even took his sunglasses off and did his best junior Tony Martin impression, riding on the downhills and on the flats. Um, on the front of the peloton with no sunglasses on, obviously he doesn't have any tear ducts. Just like the Panzer wagon must be a German thing, and yeah, we thought, okay, well it's Canada on the front. Like, yeah, sure we like Canada, but on a, like it's Askren and De Clercq and Cavania and De, Steven is chasing with Bennett helping as well. Like, it's surely only a matter of time before they catch back on, but the gap just kept growing between the green jersey group of Bennett. And Bora Hans Grower. And maybe they weren't able to take back that much time on the descents because I don't know why. I don't know why they wouldn't be able to take that much time back on the descents. I guess maybe it's equal between the two. And they really didn't have a there was sort of a long time before there was a genuine plateau. Um and then there was that cat three climb just afterwards, maybe twenty K's after the end of the descent of the Cold Biel. And that wouldn't have helped the quick-step guys too much. They also weren't getting any help from anyone else. And the gap grew, 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 went out to like 90 seconds and then CCC went to the front and started pulling and that spelled the death knell for Bennett coming back. So, so I I honestly, Benji, I I don't have any explanation for why A, in the crosswinds, I think we sort of talked about in the crosswinds, why quick-step mightn't have been able to bring back that group even though they got pretty close but today I'm today I'm really surprised that that gap kept growing because they didn't even make a dent in it over the top of the climb they never got it under uh 30 or 40 the 30 or 40 seconds that it was at the top of the climb at all and I saw Bennett pulling a few times so it has to be fatigue in the quick step riders that that group aren't Yeah, they aren't as strong as we think they are, maybe in a a one-day race when they've had a week's rest.
0: I'm going to give you a counterpoint on that. While I do believe you're right on that, I've got the feeling that the Bora strategy here was kind of interesting as well, because you've got a situation on a stage where you've got two hills in the last 10-ish kilometers, Côte-la-Duchère at 1.3 kilometers at 5.4% with a section of 8%, and then just about five kilometers from the line, exactly the same thing. 4.5%, but also an 800 meters, well, a 700 meter section at roughly 8% as well. So you've got two hills with 8% sections in the last 10 kilometers. Why are you pacing against Bora? Well, against Bennett in the stage. He's never going to get over those hills. I do not believe that he's going to get over those hills. So you're spending Bora strength, but you're also spending quick step strength, of course. If you stay in the peloton and you ride up those hills, You've got domestiques in the final for Sagan. And a better chance of winning with Sagan. And Bennett would most likely not be able to follow on those hills. Additionally, the counterpoint to my point then would be that you're giving constant fatigue to Bennett in this last week. And that could play out well if you want to try an OT element in one of the next few stages.
1: Yeah, that's a fair point. And I can't remember, it's so long ago, probably a few hours ago. Well, sort of thinking the same. Yeah, why is Bennett going to, be able to, going to be able to follow on those cat fours and not just not win, but will he even be able to get a top 10 over those cat fours? Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting point. People were saying sort of what you mentioned, yeah, will that accumulated fatigue contribute to Bennett missing the time cut? It's like, oh, well, maybe. Um but I'm not too sure it will. They did eventually sit up pretty early with like, I don't know, 70, 80 Ks to go. So he then did get a fair rest for the rest of the stage. Not a hard profile for the rest of the stage. So in the end, it probably allowed Bennett to chill for half the stage. Then being able to like, okay, well, we're just going to miss the time cut instead of even trying our hand in the sprint. Now, it did make Bennett work on that Cat 2 well, maybe that's probably not going to help him in the days to come. I'm not sure it'll really make too much of a difference either. But that was what happened. Bennett dropped. All the pure sprinters dropped. It was then CCC and Bora pacing in the peloton. Uh, from what I saw for the until it got really into the uh the finale of the race. You have got to be honest, it was pretty boring. Then once once uh Sam Bennett pulled up the flag and told De Klerk to stop pacing. Nothing too much happened in the next 60 or 70 kilometers um, of note, unless I missed something crazy, Benji. But yeah, what what was the point in the race where you thought, okay, the race is genuinely back on? Was it when Ineos and Jumbo Visma started moving to the front of the group because there was this was this descent all the way into the outskirts of Lyon and it starts getting really technical with the road furniture and roundabouts?
0: Well, at that point, you had Kung already called, by the way. that's small note I want to give that the breakaway is gone already at that point. Caught a by the, uh, Bora, well, pacing at that one, and the CCC pacing to try and keep Bennett behind. But the race basically started again on the Côte-la-Duchère and the run-in towards that. We had luckily no crashes with that road furniture because at certain points I was pretty scared with the peloton going to crazy corners and then there's a pole in the middle of the road that is signaled, but you don't see that if you are behind a hedge or something. So... In the end, it started off all at Côte-la-Duchère. Once again, 1.3 kilometers at 5.4 percentage. And the first notable attack for me personally there was Tiche Benoit. And he took quite a gap. I was like, okay, Tish, Belgian hope mm, this might happen. But soon enough, we saw, well, usually like always, we had the same in that second stage in the Tour de France of 2014 where a Belgian was clear and then obviously a Belgian has to go chase. So Thomas de Gendt decided to chase down unfortunately, for the patriotism of my country. But yeah, that was uh, an unhappy feeling. They basically crested the Côte de la Duchère, not together. Thomas Higand was still behind Benot, but the gap was basically like 15 seconds. So not that crazy. We also saw an attack in the meanwhile there by Valentin Madoua, but that didn't get too far. And towards the bottom of the next hill, the one five kilometers from the line, Côte de la Croix-Husse, Rousse, is where... It basically came together again because of attacks at the back. Because, well, the person we expected to attack on these hills attacked, Julien Alaphilippe, did you expect him to just swarm the guys up front and potentially take the win here?
1: Well, he had to attack on that climb. I don't know where on the climb would have been ideal for him to attack. It's not a particularly steep climb. Probably would have helped him if it was a little bit steeper, maybe 7 8%. It just wasn't that steep either, and that just gave the drafting advantage of the peloton chasing. Yeah, they had just such an advantage. I do want to backtrack a little bit and say the favorites for the sprint in the markets were Wout Van Arte, Sagan, Trentin. No, actually, not Trentin, sorry. Greg Van Arte was third favorite after the other two. Hirschi was quite a way up there as well. And yeah, they were the main four, and Bernot for a little bit when he was actually off the front. And Wow, I didn't get a chance to contest today's stage. I'm pretty disappointed about it. I understand, you know, the yellow jersey is more important than taking a shot at another stage win. He's already got a couple, and they got Roglic in yellow, etc. That's more important to protect. But I didn't really think Roglic needed protecting in this finale, because uh, by the time the road furniture had all seemed to have finished, really, the, the mostly the dangerous road furniture, and. Yet, Wavanagh was chasing people off the front. He was pacing on the front, bringing back, I think, Philippe. I'm not sure if you mentioned as well, Leonard Kamner attacked quite strongly, and it was he that Thomas de Kent was trying to bridge to. Um, yeah, so Wavanagh was pacing a lot during that time. There was Hesink on the front before then, and I thought, okay, are they trying to put Roglic into good position? Because this is pretty much in the last... Three to four kilometres, and it's not that technical to run in right now. Are they worried that if they don't pace, Ineos are going to attack them with Bernal or, or Kwiatkowski? I didn't really understand it. I I think it was a shame not to let Wout contest the stage when he did. he was obviously too tired at the end uh, to really factor. Do you think? what do you think the rationale was there for Jumbo Visma putting Roglic on the front? Because I just saw on Twitter. Uh, someone commending yeah, Jumbo visma for having tactics as good as Sunwebs, and I think Jumbo vismas tactics are fine, they're okay, but there are certain things here or there where I'm like, that doesn't really make sense.
0: Well, yeah, the thing is, I obviously wanted Wout Fanatou to do the sprint, but on the other end, it's been their well, excuse for not letting him sprint the whole Tour de France that their main goal is the Roglic, and they're going to focus on that and yeah maybe it's not ideal for wow but i'm afraid they have a higher purpose here
1: they're going to sound like they're some sort of like messiahs they're like the, <laughs> the mormons in in utah <laughs> Fair enough. they probably are i probably are some sort of semi-religion in holland at this point um but yeah that was there was attacks from dehent Kemna, but yeah Benoit was the first sunweb attack that got brought back by i think yeah, that got brought back and then it was She attacking quite strongly out of the group. And you got to remember these attacks are tiring people out. These teams that are chasing behind, they've got they don't have full leadout trains to bring this back and control this because of the way this stage developed. It's not the pure sprinters teams there anywhere there at the moment. In the Peloton, it's just a rag tag bunch of GC favorites and punchers and people trying their hand. You know, you've got Sturvin there. Does he really have anyone helping him? Did he uh, I don't think he went back because Richie Port had a mechanical and Port's Port like actually teleported uh back to the Peloton somehow <laughs> during after the mechanical. He had a mechanical in that last four kilometres and then was back there after it was two kilometres left after a bike change. So yeah, there's these teams that yeah, sure CCC have copped a little bit of criticism because they've got Trentin and Craig Van Avermaet and uh, couldn't really see them on the front pacing too much. But, yeah, no one just had domestiques deluxe to throw at bringing this back. And that's why it makes Sunweb's strategy so effective because I'm pretty sure Sagan was like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to chase back one of these. And he was, like, in the first three wheels actually working on the last climb. Uh, and in the last three kilometers, they did then bring back or she was all back together. Sagan was first wheel and he'd just been working and had his nose in the wind for a fair bit and he's thinking about protecting his sprint. He drifts over to the left-hand side of the road and Soren Christiansen just hits it. Like um I don't know. He he just hit it so hard at such a perfect time. Alessandro Ballan style um in the world championships in what whatever it was 2008 in the saddle just mashing a big gear staying aero and low the big man and caught Sagan off guard. Sagan probably wasn't going to chase it back anyway. And it's not always about, like, the Watts, in that you don't have to be Fabian Canchoara to win a stage like that. You can be just, like, a really good rider, like Kra if the team tactics are fantastic. And he, he, anyone could have, not anyone, but a Conti level rider could have won... In the position that Soren Kranz and was in, I'm not trying to diminish what he did, but I'm just saying Whoa. because no one, no, no, I'm just saying <laughs> because no one, <laughs> because no one could chase because because he won by he won the stage by I don't know how many seconds, um, he ended, like 15 seconds, and to gain 15 seconds on the flat after a climb just means that the chase was. Completely done, and obviously he's got to have the strength to be there in the first place. So I'm not saying Soren Kranensten is a Conti right I'm just saying, yeah, the tactics were so good, and the blocking then from Sunweb in the peloton, and you could see the peloton fanned out across the road, and even with 800 meters to go, it was pretty clear that Soren Kraneson was going to win the stage. Um, so yeah, Benji, do you want to <laughs> do you want to disagree with what I said? I'm not I'm not trying to diminish his his Tour de France stage win. I'm just Yeah, Sunweb just played it so well.
0: I agree with the format of your explanation. I compare it with the way Walgren won Amlob. You need one of the stronger riders that can stay with this kind of group to make this attack work. But on the other end, whether it would have been Søren Kroh-Andersen or, well, I would have said Sonny Colbrelli, but meh, I'm not really thinking about him there. If you would have said, for example, if... Oh God, I need a name right now. Impy, maybe? Someone like that. If he would have done the same, it might have also worked. So, I'm... Peter Pierre Peter Havoc could have could have done a similar thing. Okay, I um I might say yes, I might say no. I'm not very sure. I don't know his history much. I know he exists, but that's about it. Nonetheless, Sören Kro Anderson, uh, beautiful, a twenty three odd batch this morning, perfect finish. I um did not expect him to win this way though, because yesterday on the pod I actually said Hirschi would be the guy that I'd put forward. But this morning, well, yesterday evening, actually, after the pod, I changed my mind a bit. And it's basically because the finish would fit Hirschi, but they'd be looking at him a lot. And we saw that today as well. Hirschi attacked and everybody was on his wheel. While Sørenko Andersen kind of got lucky with the moment he attacked. But on the other end, I had him written down for today and it was, uh, yeah, it was a, a valuable bet because uh, it came home green, which is always fun.
1: I think I had Craig van Avermaet and, yeah, he didn't even come in the top 10. It was Trentin coming in top 10. Van Avermaet came 21st. And, yeah, the overall standings for the stage were Kran Anderson first, 15 seconds ahead of Luca Meskets, who won the, actually, the bunch sprint. The second, it was actually Mitchell and Scott trying to pace back, I think, for Mesgetz uh, when Kraanderson was clear. But Pedersen and Hirschi were doing such a good job blocking on the front. You could see them second wheel. Uh, Simone Consoni for Kofidis came third. They both beat Mesgetz and Consoni. They both beat Sagan in the bunch sprint. So he missed out on very valuable uh, points right there for not by not being able to win that bunch sprint. Casper Pedersen came fifth. Maybe it was Casper Pedersen blocking. Yeah. He came fifth. Jesper Sturvin sixth. Trenton seventh. Nice eighth. Colbert 9th, ninth. And she tenth. Three Sunweb riders in the top ten once again. It was a very similar finish and a similar top ten to what you would expect maybe at the Canadian uh, one-day classics, I thought. Just the way it was in a, a ma- major city centre and the, the climbs, etc. cetera. just really reminded me of the Canadian classics. And... Yeah, on the points classification, obviously there's no change in GC because except for Roman Bardet's, uh didn't start this morning or today because he he suffered a bad concussion, I think, in his fall yesterday. Even though he finished the stage and yeah, he's got he had an MRI and yeah, he's got a bad concussion, so he's out. And but in the points classification, still Sam Bennett on top, Sagan second. Bennett now forty three points ahead of Sagan. And, yeah, it's still a lot of points to make up, especially when you have to back Bennett in the sprint or Champs-Élysées. Another question is whether Bennett will be outside the time limit in any of the major Alpine stages coming up. But we can talk about them when we preview them later and talk about whether he will struggle there. Why don't we talk about Sunweb's tactics, Benji? We I offered a public apology up to them the other day when Hershey won the stage. But let's talk about why, and I sort of prefaced it with my Kra-Anderson point, why Sunweb's tactics are so effective the way they're riding compared to maybe if they did have Michael Matthews there. like What is the difference between their, the strategies compared to, say, yeah, if they had Bling, a, a really good sprinter in these situations on the team?
0: Well, I would expect that if you have bling on this kind of stage that you're going to be riding for him because this finish is also pretty perfect for him. So you basically try and lead it out for a sprint for him. But the strength of Sunweb in this Tour de France is the fact that they've got riders that... Well, there's riders that are strong, so Hirschi and such, but the other riders in the team are not much worse. And because of that, you can basically play out... Each rider, you had noted early on, on the second to last climb. We had, I think, Kasper Pedersen doing a lot of work in that group as well. We had Kro Andersen with the final attack, obviously. Hirschi with an attack on the last climb. So we got four riders that are basically performing at an insane strength here. Now, yeah, I'm expecting if you bring a matches here, you'd play it differently. But it looked like they didn't need a matches here, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I think the main difference is the riders they've brought really it probably wouldn't be too useful uh oh, Benoit did a decent job for for Matthews actually in Milano San Remo leading him out but it's not the best use of their abilities the best use of or the best sort of the strengths of Cryan Kri- Anderson Hirschi, and Benoit is attacking and Cryan Kri- Anderson and Hirschi are stronger than Benoit but Benoit is really good as a preliminary attacker to draw out other teams and force them to chase so is it more likely that they're going to win stages adopting this approach rather than, okay, ride all in for Matthews? And I think, yeah, the expectation when Matthews is on the team is is to do it like this, is to ride all in for him, lead him out. And then at the end of the day, you're still going to have Sagan, Trentin, um, Mezgetz, a whole host of characters. could be anyone sitting on the wheels and enjoying your lead out and contesting that sprint? And then what's your probability of winning winning that sprint? So that's why they've adopted this approach, to, I think, to try and get the most out of each individual rider. We've now got a stage win for Hiroshi, a stage win for Storan Um And, yeah, it's using their abilities as attackers. And Kråanderson more of a time trial-focused guy as well, He's won Paris Tour, he's won a stage in Tour de Suisse, he won a stage in Paris Nice this year. He even came second on GC in uh the Volta Argave in 2019. He came third in Omloop at the start of this year. So yeah, he's got six wins, but at 26 years old, Kranzson just looks he just looks incredibly strong and um yeah, he's just like what what do you think is the ceiling for Andersen, Benji? Do you think he He could win a monument, and what sort of monument could he? What is he most suited to?
0: I suggest that it's going to be an MSR, but he doesn't have the punch for it, I think, to try and follow the likes of Nella Philippe on the Poggio. Nonetheless, I feel like he's hit the same ceiling for three years now. Three years ago, he was on a similar level. Last year, he was a bit off, in my honest opinion. Last year, he wasn't really there, and he didn't show too much in the end. And that's why I was, like, writing him off a bit this year, because I felt like he had a great year in 2018. 2019 was not great, and I didn't expect him to be this good this year. And I think he started already at the start of the season, right? With Umlop and Islob, didn't, didn't he get third or something there? So, yeah, he's been in a really good form this year. So if he'd have to win a monument, it'd either be, well, I'm changing my mind it might be a Cobble Classic that way, but then you're leaning towards a Ronde van Vlaanderen or Tour of Flanders more than anything.
1: Yeah, I think it's hard to say. For someone like him, he, he doesn't really seem to have that much punch. His attack today was just sort of perfect timing, and the other riders being fatigued. And then he, he's got that time trial ability to then, once he has a gap, he can really hold it. That's why he is useful in breaks. When they put him in breaks, or Pedersen, with Hirschi, he can shoulder a lot of that burden. He beat uh, Kasper Askren and Kampenaerts and Matthews and Kung in a 15-kilometre individual time trial, actually, it was, in Paranese at the start of this uh, the start of this year. That was before corona lockdown. That was a 48k an hour um, time trial. So he's obviously got that sort of ability. But, yeah, just 26 years old seems like, to me, I think he's improved a fair bit. He's been there and thereabouts and popping his head up this tour already um yeah, taking his first grand tour stage win in the tour de france stage 14 but that's enough about stage 14 let's have a quick look at tomorrow's stage tomorrow we start off in the position that we ended today in lyon
0: we start off in that city and we got a stage that has roughly 100 kilometers of flatness at the start throughout that we do have an intermediate sprint so yeah I'm not sure what's to be expected from Boran and de Koenig on that, but we'll discuss that the moment we finish off the profile here. We've got two, in, with two climbs in the middle of the stage. After that 100k marker, we've got the Monte de la Serre de Fremontel, and after that, we've got the Col de la Biche. These are climbs that together have 18 kilometers of climbing. Each is roughly about 8.5%. And afterwards, we've got a plateau section of about... I'm gonna guess. You know, I think 13 ish kilometers between the Col de la Biche and the final climb of the day, the Grand Colombier, which is 17.7 kilometers at 7.1%. Now, if you have watched cycling in the last month pretty closely, you would know that this is basically almost an exact copy of Tour de Lain or was it Dauphiné? I think I messed those up quite a few times. So maybe you know it. I think I think it was Tour de l' Okay. Now the thing is this intermediate sprint is about 57 kilometers into the stage what do you expect towards that do you expect Bora to try and close down the reins a bit do you expect the Koenig to do that or do you expect them to let a breakaway go and they're basically fighting equally for the points that are left
1: well I kind of think Bora should try and let Sagan get in a break and Koenig aren't going to allow that but if it comes down to a, a proper lead out with no break for full points and Bennett's there. It's a pretty flat run in. I don't see how Sagan... Like, it looks like Sagan would lose more points in that intermediate sprint. And he lose all the points that he gained today, possibly, if Trenton gets involved as well. So, Fambora, i probably let a large break go. Or i try and, best case, get Sagan in that break. And what we've seen from the quick-step guys in the last few stages maybe they're not strong enough to really bring back that break or chase again. So that's what I'll do if I'll spit this again, try and get in the break. Probably won't happen. Um, and yeah, you've got this 100 ks before the first category 1 climb. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Whether uh, surely people will try and get in the break, uh Pierre Rolland, etc. or well, maybe they'll wait for the climbs. I don't know. Uh, I don't have a good fi- sense of what will happen with regard to the stage win and the break? Um, I feel like if Egan Bernal wants to win the Tour de France, he can't just all hang it on Col de la Loze, and we need to see something tomorrow. Uh, we have to on Colombier. It's below altitude to finish. It finishes up to 1,600 metres, k's at 7%. I think Pogaccia will attack again pretty early. I think Jumbo Visma will control the race pretty pretty well and I think Bernal will be in trouble once again. Um for the stage win I I think I think Roglič will win the stage if it's not a breakaway. So yeah, I don't just looking at how easy he was doing it at the end of that climb. Now I know this is a different sort of climb, but yeah, like Roglič Roglič can climb for more than 20 and 30 minutes as well. Like he's not he's not just a 5 minute climber, 8 minute climber. So given how banal looked, I really like Roglic to gain some more time tomorrow and stamp his authority on the tour. Maybe yeah, maybe the category 1s this deep into the tour it's going to be less hard, less easy to control compared to Tour de Land where Jumbo Visma really had things sewn up. Although, sorry, it was it was Ineos who I'm pretty sure on the uh, on Monte de la Celle from Antel, the first cat won. It was Ineos and Froome driving it there. That was clearly a mistake in Tour de Lain and really exposed Bernal. We kind of saw Bernal get exposed again when Ineos was setting pace on on the Néron climb yesterday. I'd be I'd be shocked if Ineos tried to do the same thing tomorrow, but who knows? I don't I don't have a really good feeling on what who will control the race. I just think Roglic is the strongest rider and. If Bogatia attacks, I know Roglic, or I'm pretty sure Roglic will be able to follow him. And that sets him up pretty well for the stage win if there's no break up the road. But yeah, what do you think, Benji? I know you, you love it. You love a breakaway. You can't resist it.
0: Yeah, I can't resist it. And it's because of the fact that we've got Bora and the Koenig that I think will allow breakaway to go because, well, Sagan will not be allowed in the breakaway. There's no point in keeping the pace up because you can't drop Bennett on a flat section. And if they're going to basically ride Bennett to the intermediate sprint and Bennett takes a point. So I think they're going to leave this one to a large breakaway getting away. And they might actually get a gap of like nine ish minutes towards the Monte, la- Monte de la Celle for Montel. And that is where I hope the race in the peloton opens up a bit. I don't believe it because it usually doesn't happen, but imagine if, for example, a Quintana starts attacking there. On the other end, you'd probably have Jumbo just closing that down instantly. So I'm probably just dreaming of an opportunity to see early entertainment on these climbs. But maybe if Jumbo uses the same strategy as usual, they start basing on the Monte de la Celle de Fromontel. That's a difficult name. Come on, just make it shorter. From Montel et Mentel. I don't have an issue with it. seems pretty easy to me. <laughs> it's the first French word you say correctly in this whole podcast. <laughs> 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 Just kidding. Okay. Now towards the end of the stage, uh yeah. I have to kind of lean towards my early predictions. I've got the fact that Pierre Roland still hasn't won a stage. And next to that, Pogacar is my pick for the TDF. So this is the stage on which Podgacha will gain time back on Roglic It doesn't look likely looking at the last few stages, but for my TDF pick I have to support him. And I think he's going to expand that even more on the la laws, And we're going to see Pogacar in yellow after basically stage 17. Or am I dreaming or is that a possibility?
1: Mm, Yeah, I don't think it's happening Uh, because there's just, yeah, sure. He might be the strongest rider in the tour, but there has to be like, he's not, he's not immortal uh, to my knowledge. Like there has to be a cost for never having teammates ever. And even today, in the stage, you saw him like trying to fight for position in the last ten kilometers. He's got no one to follow, whereas you got Wavener, Belgian Shepherd, purebred, protecting Primoz Roglic, um, to his own detriment for the entirety of the finale. So, yeah, that's that has to be a cost for Pagaccha, and if it if he's able to absorb that and still go into yellow, like you said, yeah, then that's that's incredible. But no, I think, yeah, I think Roglic. Is looking pretty unbeatable at the moment, but we haven't had the big mountains, and you only need to feel feel a bit off on one of these. If you feel off on one HC climb a third of the way through, you can lose the Tour de France, especially if to get, especially if Pagatcha is flying. And Pagatcha Roglic, not sure if we mentioned on the pod yesterday, they did seven point two watts per kilo for what was it seven and a half minutes yesterday. So uh, pretty good numbers. Um, I have done more, but yeah, that's pretty good numbers. I haven't done them. Two weeks into a grand tour, so that's absolutely flying. Will we see someone like Quintana doing a landis tomorrow? I don't think so because there's not climbs early enough. It's just that flat first hundred k's. But I hope something wild happens. But sometimes you got to prepare yourself, everybody. Sometimes you have to be a little bit disappointed on these sort of stages. They sometimes they don't live up to their expectation. But we'll be watching with bated breath because if something does happen or someone does feel bad, it can blow up and be one of the most exciting stages. So yeah, keen for tomorrow, Grand Colombier, the first real HC long mountain test with two Cat 1s before it. But onto to Torreno-Adriatico. We said it was going to be a bunch sprint yesterday. It was indeed a bunch sprint. There's not too much to wrap in, up in the stage except for the last five kilometres. I don't think we need to remind everyone of the profile too much. The last half of this stage for like at least 60, 70 kilometers was pancake flat on the coast. And then, yeah, there's going to be a bunch sprint in the finish. Main favorites are Merlier, Gavidia, Ackerman, and yeah, I think Darnese for Sunweb and Ballerini for Quick Step. But how did the finale actually play out, Benji?
0: So basically you've got a stage on which, well, I'd like to turn it back to the start of the stage because there's one notable thing that, canola was not in the breakaway this time we've named him every single time except for stage two in the breakaway so that was disappointing but to the moment of importance the last five kilometers we basically saw that there was quite a bit of chaos and it was quite a dangerous road because on the side of the road you had these i think electricity blocks and then poles on the side of the road and there was a bit of gravel to the left of the road and i felt like watching a video at that moment because you've got a peloton that is basically spearing towards a sprint and Gaviria and Richese and I think one other teammate is on the left of that in the middle of the stomach of the peloton the washing machine of the peloton because you basically get thrown around every single corner in that in that stomach of the peloton and Gaviria kept himself to the left of that but like twice almost hit one of these electricity blocks and then after that almost hit one of those poles so it was honestly quite scary to watch Gaviria in there. Nonetheless, towards the end, he made himself to the front, thanks to Rishese in the last two kilometers. I think it was the last kilometer because at that point you have three riders from Bora at the front. The thing is the fact that Akamon was not in their wheel. He was in the stomach of the peloton at about 1k to go. And at that point you saw Rishese with Gaviria to the front late, as we mentioned quite a few times already. And Rishese given quite a perfect lead out for Gaviria and Gaviria comes out of the wheel of Richese, but you got to remember, this finishes headwind, so at that point, he's launching, he's already launching a bit late, and he's launching straight up with a headwind, and in his wheel is the Metlier, who basically sees an opportunity on the right of him to, again, because Gaviria did not start at the barriers, like the stage Akamon one, Medlir just basically, like five pedal strokes, and he's passed Gaviria, and just in the last, 50 to 70 meters, because headwind, Merlier chose the perfect timing. And on the other side of the road, you saw that Akamon came quite close as well. He came from very far, but he ended up just taking the second spot after Merlier. Now, on the left side of the road, at the same moment that Merlier came to the front, we also saw that Magnus Kort came from the back and basically found that same position Merlier went through and went past Gaviria as well. So you've got a situation on which Merlier takes the victory, Akiman comes in second and Magnus Scott comes in third with Gaviria just launching a bit too early, coming fourth. So kind of disappointing. I hoped he would put his failures of the first two sprint stages upright, but he didn't really succeed. Do you feel like Galvidia is not up to standards this terrain you know, or do you think it's just a bit of bad luck or bad lead out per se that he's brought to the front too early or just deciding to launch too early at certain points?
1: I mean, headwind sprint it's always going to be pretty difficult to win against a decent caliber field when you're the first sprinter launching and he was again today I, I'm not sure when the meters were to me it looked when I, when I saw when he launched I didn't know it was a headwind at the time and I thought well, that's a good lead out from Richesio that's way better today and Gavidia came off his wheel looking pretty good and I thought okay that's not that far from the line That that's solid if he's good enough he should win but yeah, obviously the headwinds affected that a little bit, and you see the speed differential when Melier gets into Gavidia's slipstream. He, he just comes past him so quickly, as you said, Benji, Belgian national champ, 27 years old. He even had a little bit to go to the line as well, Melier, and he slowed down considerably once he actually hit the wind. Ackerman was so far back once again, really out. Of, he's been out of position on a lot of these sprints, and I know I know he won the, the sprint on the first stage, but, yeah, he, he had to come back and make that a, a miraculous win because he was so far out of position. And nine times out of ten, that does actually cost you, even no matter how good you are. And, yeah, he come, had to come from a long way back. I'd like to commend Gavidia again. for we giving some positive reinforcement for not shutting the door on Magnus Court. Um, Court came up on the barriers to Gavidia's right and Gavidia held his line just fine. He probably knew he was going to be... Like, the temptation when you're you're sprinting in a head, into a headwind for a long time must be... Yeah, that's why the temptation's there to close that door to one side, I guess. And he didn't. So Court came third, Gavidia fourth. Mike Turnison was sprinting for Jambo Visma, Tour de France stage winner. Came fifth. Davide Ballerini, sixth. Lorenzo Manzan, seventh. Piet Alagart, eighth. Ivan Garcia Cortina, 9th, and your boy Benji Alex Aranburu 10th. Attilo Viviani, a little bit disappointing for him. Uh, Eli Viviani's brother for Kofidis. He's got some wins in Africa, I think, at the start of the season. He's not really progressing and looking like he's yeah at close to World Tour level, contesting these sorts of sprints. Um, Mathieu van der Poel once again, leading out. Tim, well, Actually, no, that's not true. He wasn't really leading out. Merlier was he? It was Therese de Bond leading out and Mathieu Van der Poel was on the wheel of Merlier and that was what was so strange but anyway Van der Poel didn't really even contest the sprint he came 29th so not sure what's up with him, maybe he's just chilling um, before the, the the big classics I don't I don't know uh, no change on GC obviously still Yates first, Micah second Grant Thomas third The first World Tour win for familiar as i said he's also um i think his partner is cameron vandenbroek who is frank vandenbroek's daughter so yeah if they have a child the watts will be off the charts but onto the giro rosa first stage i know there's a bit of a delay but we were only able to watch the highlights uh well today in my day after i woke up and highlights are all you're probably going to want to watch when it's a team time trial men or women i'm not a big fan of team time trials um Purists are going to hate me. At me in the comments. At me at hashtag LRCP. I'm feeling a little bit feisty this week. So yeah, let me know why team time trials are the most exciting things to watch in cycling. But this was a 16.8 kilometer pancake flat time trial uh, from Grosseto to Grosseto. Some pretty hot times actually from this uh, from the women. Like pretty solid speeds um, from them. The the winners were Trek Segafredo. They averaged, they did it in 20 minutes and five seconds, averaged over 50 kilometres an hour, 50.1 kilometres an hour. Second were Bulls durmans probably the second, they were probably the two favourites, and and maybe Mitchelton-Scott as well, the third favourite for for this stage. Mitchelton came third. Boles were thir- three seconds behind Trek, and Mitchelton-Scott got five seconds behind Trek-Segafrede. So, so not big time gaps, obviously. Um given the speed they did this TTT in. And, um, and yeah, they look to be the three strongest teams already, really. And apart from them, and we're going to preview or let you talk about the GC favourites, or I will, in a second, but the big loser in this time, team time trial when, yeah, it wasn't... A, you can't win the, the Giro Rosa with this team time trial. You can't make enough time to actually win. But you can certainly make it a lot more difficult to loot to to win it, and you can be on your way to losing it. FDJ Nouvelle Aktenie, uh Futuroscope, who I presume are riding for Cecilius to Ludwig, the Danish rider, they lost a minute twenty on this time trial, so that's a big gap to make up when you've got Annemiek van Vleuten uh, and Anna van der Breggen. And yeah, Elisa Longo Borghini in this race. So, Longo Borghini, she went over the line first for Trek. She's in the leader's jersey for tomorrow's stage or today's stage, which we'll talk about tomorrow. We won't spoil it for you. But I'll just go over a few of the favorites for this race on GC. Obviously, the the big favorite, and I don't even, I haven't seen any betting markets or anything, but if I had to price someone to win Giro Rosa GC, Annemie van Vleuten. For Mitch and Scott, I'd probably have her at $1.20. Pricing in some crash risk or sickness, probably $1.20, $1.25. She's just the, the prohibitive favourite to win Giro Rosa back-to-back. On her team, they're also riding a dual prong GC, kind of like the uh, skinny Os. They've got Amanda Spratt as well, the Australian. Lucy Kennedy supporting them. She also missed out on a stage win. Um, when she celebrated too early, Mary, Mariana vos pipped her last year, Sarah Roy, Grace Brown, and Monique Teniglio, or Teniglio on Mitch from Scott. So there, I'd say, the strongest team. Um, Maybe not the strongest team, but yeah, but Van Vleuten and Sprat are probably two of the best three climbers, and you don't need me to tell you how good AVV is. Second best team is Boz Dolmans obviously Anna van der Breggen. Um, I'm not sure what, condition van der is in uh, in some of the European one day races uh, like the Britannia Classic one or GP Pluet it was called for the women's I'm not sure how how good she is at the moment they've also got Chantal uh, van der there she might be good for a stage win Amy Peters too, julien Dore but yeah, I'm not it's going to be an uphill battle no pun intended for Vanderbregen. she did go toe-to-toe with Van Vleuten last year but still lost out but yeah, they had some great battles last year. I, I'm not. I'd be surprised if it was as competitive this year between those two. And I'd be more expecting actually, um, yeah, Trek-Segafredo to p- make it more difficult for Mitchell and Scott. They got a really strong all around team. A lot of riders that have won recently. You know, Lizzie Diagnan. She won. Um, she won recently, obviously in La Course. They got. Audrey cordon Ragot, she's won recently. The French rider Elisa Longo Borghini is now already wearing the leader's jersey. Taylor Wills and Ruth Winder are strong. They're good. They're good as well. So yeah, Trek, Trek. I'll be expecting either to go to pick up a stage here, or I don't know, try something against Van Looyten. But at the end of the day, when there's those yeah. long mountain climbs, just don't think there's going to be anybody to, yeah, contest with her. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unfortunate. Maybe. Uh, there's no Katrina, isn't uh No, Nui Domer is here. Sorry. Polish Rider Nui Domer is here. She's obviously talented. This is for Canyon Shram. They've got Hannah Barnes, Elena Cecchini, Lisa Klein. Um, they might be going for stage wins. I think my pick for a stage win, and you don't need to be a genius to figure this out, is either Liana Lippert, who. I'm not sure if she's still wearing the leader of the Women's World Tour jersey. I like that competition. But yeah, Mavi Garcia, and I need to correct myself. I, I said I made a mistake in a previous pod that Mavi Garcia was still on Movistar. She's actually on Ale BTC uh Ljubljana. They've got yeah, Mavi Garcia, she's been looking really, really good. Um she's probably the looking like almost the second best one-day rider uh up there with Lizzie Daignan and Annemie van Vleuten at the moment. So Maybe a day where Van Vluyten lets her get into a break if she's lost time on GC. Mavi Garcia definitely could be up for a stage win. And I've saved it till last, but CCC live. She won like four or five stages last year. She needs no introduction. Mariana Voss, they'll be riding for her uh, for stage wins. They've also got Poliana Ruiakas, who's looked pretty good actually in breaks. She was in Giro de la She was leading out uh, and then got attacked by Ulta Ludwig there, Ashley Moolman. Uh, Pasio's is good as well. Soraya Paladin, she's strong. So, yeah, I'd expect Vos to probably pick up a stage or two. Um, but the thing is, Van Vleuten knows how strong she is now. That even stages where, if it comes to a reduced bunch sprint, that Voss used to just win and Van Vleuten couldn't really contest it. Van Vleuten's attacking from further out now and TTing her way to the finish. So, yeah, hopefully it's not just a mixed and Scott Van Vleuten show. Not Nothing against her, but just for the Competitive balance of the sport or for women's cycling in the Giro Rosa, but yeah, that, that certainly could happen. Um, but yeah, super exciting for the Giro Rosa that it does actually have like the 50 minute full highlights. Uh it's on GCN Race Pass. If you want to are not sponsored by them or anything, we just that's where it is. If you're not in I think Asia Pacific and if you're in Australia, I'm pretty sure SBS has it as well. Tomorrow's stage. 125 kilometer stage, rolly stage, two intermediate sprints, one at 42 k's, one at 73 k's, and there's a category 2 with about a crest with about 12 kilometers remaining. Uh, the Sejano climb, 5.8 k's at 6.5%. I'll be expecting New Yorker, Ludwig, Van Vleuten, Van der Breggen, i mm, it a little bit hard for Lizzie Dignan to be launching there, but. Yeah, a pretty interesting stage already um, on stage two. But that's all from us. Make sure to give us a review or a rating on the Apple Podcast Player if you get a chance and you enjoy the podcast. And, um, yeah, we really enjoyed today's stage. Hopefully the GC action kicks off properly tomorrow, like really kicks off on Grand Colombier. Ciao.